Chapter Two, Section One of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Two, Section One, The Sweater. The catastrophe was not complete. There were some long, thin fibres of pale boiled meat whose juices had been absorbed by the soup, lying about the floor, or adhering to the fragments of the pitcher. Solomon, who was a curly-headed chap of infinite resource, discovered them, and it had been just decided to neutralise the insipidity of the bread by the far-away flavour of the meat, when a peremptory knocking was heard at the door, and a dazzling vision of beauty bounded into the room. "'Here! What are you doing, leaving things leak through our ceiling?' Becky Belkovitch was a buxom, bouncing girl with cherry cheeks that looked exotic in a land of pale faces. She wore a mass of black, crisp ringlets, aggressively suggested of singeing and curl-papers. She was the belle of Royal Street in her spare time and womanly triumphs dogged even her working hours. She was sixteen years old, and devoted her youth and beauty to buttonholes. In the East End, where a spade is a spade, a buttonhole is a buttonhole, and not a primrose or a pansy. There are two kinds of buttonholes—the coarse for slop goods, and the fine for gentlemanly wear. Becky concentrated herself on superior buttonholes, which are worked with fine twist. She stitched them in her father's workshop, which was more comfortable than a stranger's, and better fitted for evading the factory acts. Tonight she was radiant in silk and jewellery and her pert-snub nose had the insolence of felicity which Agamemnon deprecated. Seeing her, you would have as soon concocted her with esoteric Buddhism as with buttonholes. The booby explained the situation in voluble Yiddish, and made Esther wince under the impassioned invective of her clumsiness. The old beldame expended enough oriental metaphor on the accident to fit up a minor poet. If the family died of starvation, their blood would be upon her granddaughter's head. "'Well, why don't you wipe it up, stupid?' said Becky. "'How would you like to pay for Pesach's new coat? It just dripped past his shoulder.' "'I'm so sorry, Becky,' said Esther striving hard to master the tremor in her voice, and drawing a house-cloth from a mysterious recess, she went on her knees in a practical prayer for pardon. Becky snorted, and went back to her sister's engagement party, for this was the secret of her gorgeous vesture, of her glittering earrings, and her massive brooch as it was the secret of the transformation of the Belkovitch workshop and living-room into a hall of dazzling light. Four separate gaunt, 
bare arms of iron gas-pipe lifted hymenial torches the labels from reels of cotton pasted above the mantelpiece as indexes of work alone betrayed the past and future of the room at a long narrow table covered with a white tablecloth spread with rum gin biscuits and fruit and decorated with two wax candles in tall brass candlesticks stood or sat a group of swarthy neatly dressed poles most of them in high hats a few women wearing wigs silk dresses and gold chains round half-washed necks stood about inside the inner circle a stooping black-bearded blear-eyed man in a long threadbare coat and a black skull-cap on either side of which hung a corkscrew curl sat abstractly eating the almonds and raisins in the central place of honour which befits a maggid before him were pens and ink and a roll of parchment this was the engagement contract the damages of breach of promise were assessed in advance and without respect of sex whichever side repented of the bargain undertook to pay ten pounds by way of compensation for the broken pledge as a nation israel is practical and free from cant romance and moonshine are beautiful things but behind the glittering veil are always the stern realities of things and the weaknesses of human nature the high contracting parties were signing the document as becky returned the bridegroom who halted a little on one leg was a tall sallow man named pesach weingott he was a bootmaker who would expound the talmud and play the fiddle but was unable to earn a living he was marrying fanny belcovitch because his parents-in-law would give him free board and lodging for a year and because he liked her fanny was a plump pulpy girl not in the prime of youth her complexion was fair and her manner lymphatic and if she was not so well favoured as her sister she was more amiable and pleasant she could sing sweetly in yiddish and in english and had once been a pantomime fairy at ten shillings a week and had even flourished a cutlass as a midshipman but she had long since given up the stage to become her father's right-hand woman in the workshop she made coats from morning to midnight at a big machine with a massive treadle and had pains in her chest even before she fell in love with pesach weingott there was a hubbub of congratulation mazel tov mazel tov good luck and a palsy of handshaking when the contract was signed remarks grave and facetious flew about in yiddish with phrases of polish and russian thrown in for old lang syne and cups and jugs were broken in reminder of the transiency of things mortal the belcoviches had been saving up their already broken crockery for the occasion the hope was expressed that mr and mrs belcovitch 
would live to see rejoicings on their other daughter, and to live to see their daughter's daughters under the chuppah, or wedding canopy. Becky's hardened cheeks blushed under the oppressive jocularity. Everybody spoke Yiddish habitually at Number 1 Royal Street, except the younger generation, and that spoke it to the elder. I've always said no girl of mine should marry a Dutchman. It was a dominant thought of Mr. Belkovitch, and it rose spontaneously to his lips at this joyful moment. Next to a Christian, a Dutch Jew stood lowest in the hierarchy of potential sons-in-law. Spanish Jews, earliest arrivals by way of Holland after the Restoration, are a class apart, and look down upon the later imported Ashkenazim, embracing both Poles and German Dutchmen in their impartial contempt. But this does not prevent the Pole and the Dutchman from despising each other. To a Dutch or Russian Jew the Polak or Polish Jew is a poor creature and scarce anything can exceed the complacency with which the Polak looks down upon the Litvok, or Lithuanian, the degraded being whose Shlibboleth is literally Sibboleth, and who says E, where rightly constituted minds say Oo. To mimic the mincing pronunciation of the Litvok affords the Polak a sense of superiority almost equalling that possessed by the English Jew, whose mispronunciation of the holy tongue is his title to rank far above all foreign varieties. Yet a vein of brotherhood runs beneath all these feelings of mutual superiority, like the cliqueism which draws together old clo-dealers though each gives fifty per cent more than the other dealer in the trade. The Dutch foregather in a district called the Dutch Tenters. They eat voraciously, and almost monopolize the ice-cream, hot pea, diamond-cutting, cucumber-herring, and cigar-trades. They are not so acute as the Russians. Their women are distinguished from other women by the flaccidity of their bodices. Some wear small woollen caps and sabots. When Esther read in her school-books that the note of the Dutch character was cleanliness, she wondered. She looked in vain for the scrupulously scoured floors and the shining caps and faces. Only in the matter of tobacco smoke did the Dutch people she knew live up to the geographical readers. German Jews gravitate to Polish and Russian, and French Jews mostly stay in France. Ici on ne parle pas français is the only lingual certainty in the London ghetto, which is a cosmopolitan quarter. I always said no girl of mine should marry a Dutchman. Mr. Belkovitch spoke as if at the close of a long career devoted to avoiding Dutch alliances, and forgetting that not even one of his daughters was yet secure. 
"'Nor any girl of mine,' said Mrs. Belkovitch, as if starting a separate proposition. "'I would not trust a Dutchman with my medicine-bottle, much less with my Alty or my Becky. Dutchmen were not behind the door when the Almighty gave out noses, and their deceitfulness is in proportion to their noses.' The company murmured assent and one gentleman with a rather large organ, concealed it in a red cotton handkerchief, trumpeting uneasily. "'The Holy One, blessed be he, has given them larger noses than us,' said the Maggid, "'because they have to talk through them so much.' A guffaw greeted this sally. The Maggid's wit was relished even when not coming from the beamer. To the outsider this disparagement of the Dutch nose might have seemed a case of a pot calling the kettle black. The Maggid poured himself out a glass of rum, under cover of the laughter, and murmuring, L'chaim, life to you, in Hebrew, gulped it down, and added, They oughtn't to call it the Dutch tongue, but the Dutch nose. "'Yes, I always wonder how they can understand one another,' said Mrs. Belkovitch, with their chatukaya kvetsapupa. She laughed heartily over her onomatopoeic addition to the Yiddish vocabulary, screwing up her nose to give it due effect. She was a small, sickly-looking woman with black eyes and shrivelled skin, and the wig without which no virtuous wife is complete. For a married woman must sacrifice her tresses on the altar of home, lest she snare another man with such sensuous baits. As a rule she enters into the spirit of the self-denying ordinance so enthusiastically as to become hideous, hastily, in every other respect. It is forgotten that a husband is also a man. Mrs. Belkovitch's head was not completely shaven and shorn, for a lower stratum of unmatched shade of brown peeped out in front of the scheitel, not even coinciding, as to the root of the central parting. Meanwhile, Pesach Weingott and Alti Belkovitch held each other's hand, guiltily conscious of Batavian corpuscles in the young man's blood. Pesach had a Dutch uncle, but as he had never talked like him, Alti alone knew. Alti wasn't her real name, by the way, and Alti was the last person in the world to know what it was. She was the Belkovitch's first successful child. All the others had died before she was born. Driven frantic by a fate crueller than barrenness, the Belkovitches consulted an old Polish rabbi, who told them they displayed too much fond solicitude for their children, provoking heaven thereby. In future they were to let no one but themselves know their next child's name, and never to whisper it till the child was safely married. In such a wise heaven would not be incessantly reminded of the existence of their dear one, 
and would not go out of its way to castigate them. The ruse succeeded, and Alte was anxiously waiting to change both her names under the chuppah, and to gratify her lifelong curiosity on the subject. And meantime her mother had been calling her Alte or Olden, which sounded endearing to the child, but grated on the woman arriving ever nearer to the years of discretion. Occasionally Mrs. Belkovitch succumbed to the prevailing tendency and called her Fanny. Just as she sometimes thought of herself as Mrs. Belkovitch, though her name was Kosminski. When Alte first went to school in London, the headmistress had said, What's your name? The little Olden had not sufficient English to understand the question, but she remembered that the headmistress had made the same sounds to the preceding applicant, and where some little girls would have put their pinafores to their eyes and cried, Fanny showed herself full of remorse, as the last little girl, though patently awestruck, had come off with flying colours, merely by whimpering, Fanny Belkovitch. Alte imitated those sounds as well as she was able. Fanny Belkovitch, did you say? said the headmistress, pausing with arrested pen. Alte nodded her flaxen poll vigorously. Fanny Belkovitch, she repeated, getting the syllables better on a second hearing. The headmistress turned to an assistant. Isn't it astonishing how names repeat themselves? Two girls, one after the other, both with exactly the same name. They were used to coincidences at the school, where, by reason of the tribal relationship of the pupils, there was a great run on some half a dozen names. Mr. Kosminski took several years to understand that Alte had disowned him. When it dawned upon him he was not angry, and acquiesced in his fate. It was the only domestic detail in which he had allowed himself to be led by his children. Like Chaya, he was gradually persuaded into the belief that he was born Belkovitch, or at least that Belkovitch was Kosminski translated into English. End of chapter 2, section 1